Last week we began our journey of looking at the names of Jesus. We began by looking at that primary name, Jesus, what it means, what it means not just in terms of its, its etymology, how it's constructed and its definition, but what it means to us personally in terms of our lives, in terms of how we function, how we relate to God, how we understand uh, what he came to accomplish and uh, who we might be uh, in response to that. This morning, as we continue looking at some names, uh, I want to back up just a little bit, want to broaden our perspective just uh, a little bit and look at why one name simply won't do. Um, when we talk about Jesus, last week we talked about how uh, names reflect character, how names reflect uh, position, how names reflect uh, certain aspects of who an individual is. We choose names for our children based upon kind of what we want them to be, who we expect them to be, that sort of thing. Um, and, and when you stop and think about that, you stop and think about the reality of who Christ is and, and what it is he has accomplished and what it is he does, then obviously we would have to say that one name simply won't do. There's not one name that's going to encompass everything that Jesus does. There's not one name that's going to communicate all that he is. But even beyond that, I, I think there's a, there's a role that the, the multiplicity of names plays in terms of our own life and our own perspective of God and the life that we live before him. And that is uh, that the multiplicity of names speaks to the issue of trust. Trust is probably one of those things that we struggle with most in terms of our relationship to God, in terms of our relationship to others. Um, we live in a world that, that undermines trust at every corner. There's a story told of a father who took his young son out, stood him on the railing of the back porch, and then he went down and stood on the lawn and encouraged the little fellow to jump into his arms. He said, I'll catch you. And after a lot of coaxing, after a lot of encouraging, the little boy finally made the leap, and when he did, the father stepped back, let the child fall to the ground. He picked his son up, dusted him off, dried his tears, and said, let that be a lesson. Don't ever trust anyone. And we don't need that kind of lesson in life because we're already going to struggle with trust. We're already going to struggle with relating to people appropriately because people will let us down. We'll put ourselves out there. We'll express something and they'll shoot us down. Or we'll uh, build a relationship with somebody only to have them betray that trust in some way for them to let us down. Trust is something that we struggle with because living in a fallen world, people are going to let us down. And because we can't trust people, so often that translates into an inability to trust God as well. Even though God will not let us down, even though God has communicated that He is with us and that He will never forsake us and that He will see us through our difficult times and our difficult issues, we still struggle with trusting Him because our experience with trusting others has failed so often. As we continue in our journey of looking at the names of God, or the names of Jesus, I want us to, to, to understand this morning that the multiplicity of names is meant, at least in part, to address this issue of trust, to help us to see that He is indeed one worthy of trust, to help us to move beyond the barriers that would limit us, that would restrain our trust in Him. 
And to deal with that, I want us to look at a very familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 9. It's a passage that um, we experience a lot this time of year at Christmas. Uh, Handel's Messiah is framed largely around uh, this particular passage. And so we hear it whenever we hear that great work of, of, uh, of art, of expression, of worship that uh, Handel uh, wrote, composed. But let me just set the setting for you here in Isaiah 9 and, and exactly what's going on. The, the broader setting is the book of Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah, especially the first half, 1 through 39, is focused upon the issue of in whom do you trust? Where is your trust? The book starts with a, a perspective of Israel's sin and how they have failed despite the fact that God has provided so much uh, for them. God has communicated to them uh, and blessed them in, in so many different ways. Uh, the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 brings all that to a head as it communicates that, that Israel is worthy of judgment because God has done so many things for them and yet they have refused to listen to Him. They refuse to trust in Him. And then in Isaiah 6, you have Isaiah's great commission as God calls him out and, and, and sets him apart to go to the nation to proclaim the truth. But God says even there in that calling, you'll go, but they won't listen. They won't trust you. And then in Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, you have what's called the book of Emmanuel. It's a, it's a story that, that is involved, uh, that involves uh, uh, the Syro-Informatic conflicts. And what's going on there is King Ahaz uh, is uh, being threatened by his neighbors to the north. Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Syria are attacking Judah. Okay? They're coming at him. They, they want him to join with them and, and, and come into an alliance uh, to fight an even bigger foe, Assyria. But Ahaz has said, I'm really not interested in that. I don't want that. That's not where I want to want to go, and so Israel and Syria have decided to attack. And their plan is to unseat him, remove him from the throne, put their own person on the throne, and then all three of them can go and fight this battle together. That's their plan. And so the question is, who will Ahaz trust? Will he trust God? Or will he trust alliances and military uh, agreements that will he thinks, get him through this situation, through this harm, through this difficulty. And that's where you have the, the whole revelation from Isaiah to Ahaz about this, the, the signs and the expressions and the communication from God that Ahaz really needs to trust God. As you move into chapters 13 and following, you have the oracles against the nation. And, and these are, are meant to express that all these nations that are around Israel are not worthy of Israel's trust either. That Judah can't trust in them. That that Judah can't rely on these because all of these nations are in opposition to God and all of these nations will ultimately fail. And then the last half of Isaiah ends with very a very similar story where Hezekiah now is facing a threat from an outside foe. They're coming against Judah. And Hezekiah has a choice just like his father Ahaz had. Will you trust God or will you trust in these alliances? And Hezekiah makes the right choice. He says, I'm going to trust God. And God delivers Judah from the, the attacking foe. And so the whole flow of the first half of Isaiah is this issue of who are you going to put your trust in? Who are you going to put your confidence in? And as we come to our, our, our section today, 
we're in that book of Emmanuel. We're in that passage. We're in that place where God is speaking to Ahaz and he's saying, trust me. Trust me. And we've seen already in Isaiah chapter 7 where, where God says, I'll give you any sign you want. Ask anything as high as the heavens, as deep as shale. Ask anything you want. I'll give it to you if that's what it takes to get you to trust me. And Ahaz says, eh, no thanks. I, I don't need a sign. I, I don't want a sign. And Isaiah says, you're wearing me out, man. Therefore, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign will be a child. And you have this introduction of God's response to the situation. And there's this interplay that's going on between the context of Ahaz and the signs that God's given Ahaz directly in his life and in his experience and, and in his court and his environment and the one who's ultimately going to come and be the final response of God to the, the trust issues. And so you, you move back and forth between the context of Ahaz and the future hope of Israel and the Messiah, the one who would come. And so God has expressed all these things, and, and he's re revealed and reflected the, the idea of Emmanuel, something we'll look at next week. And he's reflected the, the, the issue of how God is moving in the midst, and God is ultimately going to deliver Judah, but because of Ahaz's distrust, there's going to be judgment as well. And as we come here in Isaiah chapter 9, you have Isaiah moving really away from the context of his environment and saying, ultimately, the response to the distrust you've shown here, Ahaz, has to happen in a way beyond our imagination, in a way that, that you can't conceive of right now, in a way that's bigger than us. There is one who will come who will transform not just Judah, not just Israel, but all of humanity. And that's where we pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you and they re as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire for a child will be born to us a son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders he will be named wonderful counselor mighty god eternal father prince of peace the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end he will reign on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, we look at this passage, as we look at these names, 
God, we pray that they would relate, they would communicate, they would reveal the very things they're intended to reveal. That we can put our trust in you. That we can find confidence in who you are. That we can move in a direction and in a purpose and in a way that honors you, God. Use this time to break through the barriers of distrust that we possess and move us closer to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, the passage starts by telling us why this lack of trust exists, why we struggle. He says, the people walking in darkness, they, they're living in a land of darkness. That, that is, as humans, since the fall, we live in a place of darkness. We live in a place where we can't see the truth, where we can't see, where we can't recognize who God really is and how God wants to function with us. It's a deep darkness. It's an it's a all-encompassing darkness. This is the idea that's expressed in terms of the land of darkness. And when you live in that kind of darkness, when you live in that sort of situation, you need something that's going to come through and break through that. You need the light. Because the light brings clarity. The light brings direction and purpose. But because each individual within that darkness deals with different issues, you need different pictures, you need different portrayals, you need different expressions to communicate to us where we're at. What you're struggling with and what I'm struggling with are really the very same thing at their heart. A lack of trust and an expression of pride. At the heart of everything we deal with, at the heart of everything we, we struggle with, are those two realities. But how we express that lack of trust, how we express that pride, how we live, manifests itself very differently. How you express your struggles is very different than how I express my struggles. And how I see, or how I understand what I need is going to be very different than how you see what you need. And so a multi-pronged approach is needed. Uh, An answer is required. But because we're in the darkness, we can't do this on on our own. And so God is the one who has to begin the work. God is the one who has to reach out to us. God is the one who has to condescend to bring us to Him because we can't ourselves get there. And this is what Isaiah is communicating. He's talking about how God's responding. He tells us, first of all, that God's going to use an unexpected approach. He's going to do things that might surprise us. He uses two images to communicate this. Number one, he says that the answer is going to come from Galilee. The one who's going to respond to this is is going to be somebody who, who lives, who dwells, who operates, who functions in Galilee. Now, to a person who lives in Judah at this time, that's very odd indeed. Because Galilee would be part of the northern kingdom of Israel. Galilee would be part of that group up there that's attacking Judah. And yet God says, no, I'm going to change that whole situation. 
I'm going to take that in a whole different direction. And the answer is going to come from someone of Galilee. Sometimes as God addresses us, as God moves in our life and in our experience, He comes at us from directions we don't anticipate. Sometimes He uses hardship. Sometimes He uses comfort. Sometimes He uses people that maybe we don't trust to say a word from God, to communicate something to us, and it clicks in that moment. But if you think again about how God chose to save the world, the, the whole situation is just strange. It's just strange. I'm going to send a child. I'm going to send a child who's technically a king, but he's laying in a manger. I'm going to send a child who, whose parents are from Galilee. What did Nathaniel say later on in the Gospels? Can anything good come from Galilee? The whole situation strange. Why? Because it's a kingdom that's upside down. To find your life, you have to lose it. You want to be first, you got to be last. Over and over and over again, Christ used these images of saying, the kingdom I'm proclaiming and the answer to your lack of trust and the answer to the darkness that you dwell in is very different than what you would make it out to be. I didn't come as a conquering warrior. I came as a suffering servant who's going to die on a cross. And the disciples struggled with that. And sometimes we look at them and we say, why didn't you get it? He told you you had three years with him. Why are you surprised? When the reality is we struggle with it too. Because we like to frame Jesus in our context. We like to frame Jesus in, in our definitions. When he's called us to something extraordinary, something amazing, something unexpected. And so this child from Galilee is going to be the answer to the situation here. But not just the situation here, to all of our needs. Isaiah then, in verse 6, reflects to us the names. And it's in these names that you see the multi-pronged approach of God seeking to overcome our failure to trust. And the first name tells us that the one who is coming will have unmatched qualifications. He'll have qualities and characters that are beyond our imagination. Wonderful counselor. And the word wonderful there is the best approximation we can come to in English. And, that, and in some ways that's kind of sad because we really lessened the word wonderful in how we use it. You know, somebody does something for us, oh, that's wonderful. That's so kind of you. Okay. That's really not what the word means. 
It doesn't mean nice. It doesn't mean pleasant. Wonderful means mind-blowing. Okay? It means it's beyond our concepts. The Hebrew word is probably better translated otherworldly. Okay? It is supernatural. This one who's coming is beyond our concepts. He is otherworldly. He's mind-blowing in the power he possesses. And that's coupled with the fact that he's a counselor. He's what? He's one who offers wisdom. I hope you have someone in your life that has wisdom that you trust. Somebody that you can go to and you can talk to and, and you can communicate with them and, and you know they're just going to give you balanced good advice. may not be perfect advice, but it's going to be balanced. There's, there's something about it that you can have confidence in. I hope that's what you have. Because if you do, then you can understand what God's getting at here when He talks about wonderful counselor, this otherworldly one who's offering direction for your life, direction that you can fully trust in, that you can rest in, that you can have confidence in. And it's that kind of confidence that, that allows us to really experience trust to its fullest. It's a story told of a man named Oscar, uh, Uncle Oscar. Uncle Oscar managed to get well into his latter years without ever having taken an airplane flight. But it came time, he wanted to visit some, some friends and some family far away, and the only way he was going to be able to get there was by getting on an airplane. And so as apprehensive as he was, he decided to go ahead and get on the plane and when he landed, his family picked him up and they were eager to hear how it went. They said, how did it go, Uncle Oscar? And he said, well, it wasn't as bad as I thought it might be, but I tell you this, I never did put all my weight down. That's what trust is. It's putting all our weight down. It's just resting. In the fact that God's got this. Jesus has this. His qualifications define Him, express Him, communicate Him as one who can direct us in ways beyond our imagination, who can show us things and places that we never thought we'd go. Not only does He have Unmatched qualifications, however, the names also continue on to communicate that he has unquestioned authority. He's revealed as mighty God. And the idea here, in a kingly sense, is, is that of ultimate control. He is the one who holds all things in his hands. He's in control. And we need to understand that, that because of that, we can trust Him. We can understand that He's going to direct things. And we need to get in our minds and in our thoughts and in our perspectives of life where Samuel, Samuel Rutherford ha has expressed. He says, task 
are ours. Events are God's. That is, task, things we do, they belong to us. They're our responsibility. But events, they belong to God. God is in control of these things. He says, when our faith goes to meddle with events and to hold account upon God's providence and begins to say, how will you do this or how will you do that, then we lose ground. We have nothing to do there. It is our part to let God exercise His almighty office, to steer His own helm. There is nothing left for us but to see how we may be approved by Him. So what's that mean? It means I live my life according to how God has directed. Okay, I, I make those choices. I, I make those decisions. I carry out the task that are before me, but I trust how it's all going to play out to God. Why? Because He is the mighty God. He is the one who's in control. I don't have to worry about those things. He's got it. And I can do that because of His unmitigated love, which is what the next name reveals. His love, everlasting Father. Now, some people might struggle with this image of father. Some people might have a father like that father in that opening illustration. Don't ever trust anyone. Some people may have those images, those ideas. And so when we hear everlasting father or we hear the, the image of God as father, those sorts of things, we struggle with it because we didn't have a very good picture painted for us. The image is meant to be one of comfort. It's meant to be one of trust. Now, I also want to say this is not Father in the sense of saying the Savior is God the Father. This is not saying Jesus is the Father. Don't confuse those ideas. Okay? We don't, we don't, the Trinity does not confuse the separate persons. Jesus is not the Father, Jesus is the Son. And Isaiah here is not speaking to the idea of the Trinity in, in using this terminology. He's talking about a picture, an image of one who can comfort and correct, one who is close yet distinct, one who cares for and provides. That's the picture. Move beyond your images of your earthly father, perhaps. Move beyond your images of, of one who has failed you or let you down and understand that this is an image of comfort and correction, of, of closeness, of provision. And it's not just comfort and closeness and provision that comes and goes. It's what? It's everlasting. It's eternal, the passage says. Jesus does not abandon us. He doesn't go away for a time and say, did you miss me? He's always there. I am with you always. I'm present. And when you face those hardships, when you face those difficulties, when you face those times when people let you down, and people will inevitably let you down, know that He's right there with you. And He never will let you down. He never will forsake you. He never will abandon you. 
It's all brought together in this last name. It's a, it's a powerful name. Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. What does that communicate? It communicates an unchallenged reign. Get, get the image here. Get the picture here. <coughs> there are a lot of people, kings, despots, and so forth throughout the centuries who have said, I'm the absolute sovereign. I'm the king of the world. Okay. We've had those sorts of expressions. We've had those sorts of leaders. But in every single case, there's one part of their kingdom. There's one part of their empire. There's one part of their people they rule over that doesn't want them there. There's one part of the people they rule over who would just assume they go someplace else who is in their hearts rebellious. But what this passage is communicating is that Jesus is what? He's the Prince of Peace. He's the ruler, and his rule is so thorough, it's so powerful, it's so amazing that there is no opposition, ultimately. When Christ returns, every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is King, is Lord. There won't be any who will oppose because they can't. That's how powerful, that's how amazing he is. So when you bring all of that together, his otherworldliness, his, his might, his love, his authority, his reign, that is someone you can put trust in. That's someone you can put confidence in. But what do we mean by trust? Does it just mean, you know, I'll give you a part of me? I think for a lot of Christians, we don't really trust God. We take a calculated gamble on God. And those are not the same thing. Let me try and paint a picture of what I'm talking about here. Years ago, a man named Monroe Parker was traveling through Alabama, and it was hot sultry summer day and he stopped at a watermelon stand picked out a watermelon asked the proprietor how much it cost and the owner said it's a dollar ten he reached in his pocket he says all i have is a dollar and the owner said that's okay i'll trust you for it and he said well, well that's that's mighty nice of you he picked up the watermelon and began to walk away and the proprietor said wait wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute where's the dollar you forgot to leave me the dollar. And he said, you said you would trust me for it. And he said, but I meant I'd trust you for the dime. And he said, that's not really trust. That's a calculated gamble for 10 cents. In other words, if he doesn't come back, all I've lost is a dime. That's not really trust. You see the difference? When God calls us to trust in him, he doesn't want us to say, I'm going to hold, I'm going to give you this, but I'm going to hold this part back just in case you let me down. Okay? I'm going to take a calculated risk that if I lose 
this part that I've given you, that's okay. If I lose that part, that's okay. I've taken that risk on you. It's a gamble. You may let me down, you may not. So I'm going to give you this little part of me, but I'm going to keep the more important part of me. That's the difference between trust and a, and a calculated gamble. When God calls us, he calls us to give us give him everything. To not say, I'm just going to give you the safe part. Jesus, I, I'm giving you my soul. Because let's face it, if we say you're giving us a soul, and that's all we're really giving them, that's a gamble. That when we die, that we will have a soul, you know, those sorts of things. It's Pascal's wager. You know, if I live my life for Christ and I get to the end and it was all a lie, that's okay. I haven't lost anything. That's not what Christ is calling us to. He's not calling us to that kind of wager. He's saying, give me everything. I want it all. I want all you are. I want your hopes. I want your dreams. I want your relationships. I want your money. I want it all. Don't just give me the part that's safe that doesn't really cost you anything. Give me all that you are. Or don't give me anything. That's why the call is what? To come and to die. Because when you literally call someone to come and die, you're saying what? It's everything. It's all in. I can't hold, If I come to die, I can't hold anything back because there's nothing to hold back. That's a big step. And it's not something that we all automatically do. It's something we have to grow as we mature in our faith. Jesus, I've, I've given you who I am. But sometimes what? We kind of pull some of that back. That's part of the growing process. But here's the thing. When we give God everything, when we truly trust Him, when we place all that we are, in his hands, and we trust him with it. Number one, it's a wise decision given all that his names reveal himself to be. But number two, it's a wise decision given what he gives us. Isaiah communicates to us here in verses 2 through 5 what it is that Jesus gives. He gives light. He gives joy. He says in verse 3, he gives deliverance. He gives peace. Now think about that. The one who can hold all these things together. The one who is all these things. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. He's reaching out to you and he's offering you light and joy and deliverance and peace. Why would you hold? anything back from someone like that? Why would you reserve anything for yourself? Why would you seek to just, quote, play it safe and see how it turns out? God has called us to more than that. And as we celebrate Christmas, 
and we see all the things He has done for us. How can we give Him anything less than all we are? It's a challenge that's been put before us, but it's also a comforting promise that's been granted to us in the one who came to die in our place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. I thank you for sending your Son to dwell among us, to be all that we need Him to be and more. God, I pray that you would help us to not live life as a calculated gamble to where we're giving you just enough that we think we're still safe and we can hold on to that part of us that is most important to us. God, help us place all that we are in your hands. Help us to communicate all that we are and to live a life that reflects that. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's never given their life to you, who's never communicated, related to you in a way to where they see their need and submit their lives to you. Lord, I pray that you would draw them this morning, that they you would allow them to see their desperate need for you in their lives and that they would respond by coming and saying, I, I need Jesus. But God, I especially want to lift up my brothers and sisters and myself this morning as well. And to ask that you help us to daily take up our cross, to daily die to ourselves. To not hold things back thinking we can take better care of them than you can. But to place all of our trust, all of our confidence, all that we are in you. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to commit to that to walk in that. We praise you and we thank you for your gift of grace to us. And I ask that you help us to respond to it appropriately here this morning. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.